If you have watched kids play together, particularly siblings, you may have experienced um, what I like to call spiteful deconstruction, okay? The way this works is pretty easy. If you've been around kids, you've seen it. One of the kids builds a beautiful uh, tower of Legos that they are very uh, proud of their accomplishment, right? They've managed to get as tall as they could get it. It's taller than they are. They are beaming with pride. And for some reason, their sibling or their friend or whoever looks at them and goes, it would be really fun to just destroy that thing that they just put together, right? And so they run over, they knock it over, and all of the joy and the pride that was in the first child's eyes just drains into horror. And there's just this ugly scene of humanity where the, the one child gloats and laughs over their ability to take apart the thing that their sibling has just worked so hard on. It's a fascinating scene because um, it's just people are just evil, right? You know, like what is it about little kids that it's so fun to mess something up that somebody else has done? Why would you want to destroy something that way? If you uh, were with us last week, you know that we are starting this series. We're going through this series. It's going to be five parts where we talk about the big story of the Bible and how, um, where, kind of where we sit in that story. What is the overarching point? Okay. If you sometimes get lost in like the little minute details that we talk about, this is your series because this is talking about a big swath. What does the whole thing mean? And today is going to be about spiteful deconstruction about humanity's desire to mess up something that somebody else did. And we pick up with where we talked last week about creation, right? So if you weren't here last week, I will give you the very simple conversation. Basically, creation, we talked about how God brought order to the world. That um, while we often talk about creation as uh, an artist with a blank canvas that paints on top of it, really... The way that the Bible talks about it is more that God took a bunch of like a chaotic drawer and put it in organizers, okay? And that that is maybe weird and it doesn't sound as artistic and as beautiful, but there's so much in that narrative about creating order and predictability and separating things and putting things in their right place. And you do that because in the ancient world, when things are not in their right place, when the river is supposed to be there, but now it's here, you lose your home right? They just, they were so at the whims of nature that God creating a peaceful, organized world was helpful. And so we talked about this chart. We talked about if you take the six main days of creation, they're very perfectly aligned. So on day one, you create light and darkness. And then on day four, you create uh, things to fill and or inhabit the light and darkness. So he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, you create the sky and the sea. So on day five, you create the birds and the fish to populate those places, right? Day three, you create the land. And on day six, there's the animals that populate that land. It's very much, it's just very organized. It's a nicely, you know, planned out itinerary. And today we are going to go to then stage two of that story, which is how all of that organization just gets messed up. All right. Uh, there's a point in the sermon now where we need to talk about something. And I need to talk about it because it might be in the back of your head the whole time if I don't. Okay? We are going to talk about Adam and Eve today. 
Some of you, um, for what you believe and how you grew up and the ways that you understand things, you need Adam and Eve to be historical people that actually existed, right? You, there has to be an Adam and an Eve, and they were the first two people, and everybody in the world comes from those people. And it very much is uh, important to you that the Bible tells that story in a historical way. Some of you are on the opposite end of that spectrum. If I come before you today and I tell you a story about two people that populated the whole earth, you're going to be like, Caleb, there's so many ways that doesn't work. And you start pulling out you know, your science textbooks and you want to deal with it, okay? Um, I will say that that's a thing that we have to deal with. Genesis 1 through 11 has a type of literature that has a lot of stories that feel like they might be something other than history as modern Western Europeans define it, okay? And I think it's a mistake for us to require it to be history as modern Western European people define it. Um, all I will say is if you feel it's very, very important that these are definitely, this is a historically accurate photograph of exactly what happened, that's okay with me. And if you have a problem with that and you feel like this is maybe more allegory about the early humanity and it tells us kind of how God and humans existed with each other by kind of giving us a story, uh, that's okay with me too, okay? I'm just kind of agnostic at this point. Um, I think both of those approaches have their, their values. I think it's important that we let the text be the text. So I'm going to talk about these characters as the Bible talks about them. And please, you know, we can get into the conversation about the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 at some other point. But for today, that's just how I'm, I'm going to talk about them as Adam and Eve and their children and all that stuff. Does that sound good? That is definitely a good conversation we could have. And maybe even somewhat in the Q&A if you really want to. But I thought it would be good to talk about that. So our story picks up, and we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a special place that God has created for humanity to be. And as we talked about last week, to cooperate with God, to work alongside God, to continue to bring in the order and the peace and the beauty that God wants to create. And what we're going to see is that there's a simple set of rules that God has put in place in the Garden. Uh, there's a couple of different trees of significance. There is the tree of life in the Garden. This is the tree you eat from, and it helps you to stay alive, okay? That becomes an important plot point later on. Uh, there's also something called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is some kind of tree. We don't totally understand the mechanics of it, but it's a tree that when you take of it, 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 it changes the nature of humanity. It changes the nature of the human relationship with God. And God says, I'm giving you this whole garden. The one thing I ask, only one rule, don't eat from this tree. The rest of them are fine. All the mangoes and kumquats or whatever you want, go ahead. Just this one tree, please stay away from. And that's where we pick up our story today. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, oh, Adam? We, well, yeah, let's get to Save that for Q&A. We'll get to it. So um, we get this story, and we get the serpent that comes in. Now, most of you will immediately identify the serpent with the devil or Satan, right? Uh, that has been historically the way that Judaism and Christianity has always understood this character. All I would note is that it's not in the text, okay? We have the serpent playing a role, but the, the, the text never says that it's the devil. It never says who it is. It's just the serpent that causes trouble. But he comes and he has these ways where he, he plays with really with Eve's ego, right? You, oh, don't believe that. You're not going to die. The problem is God's really trying to hold you down, right? If you would just do what you want to, things would be okay. And uh, there's all these, it's, you know, we could go in and di um, diagnose all these little half-truths, right? Eve starts out okay. Oh, he said we can't eat of this tree, correct? In fact, he said we can't even touch it. That's, he didn't say that, but okay. You know, like immediately you see how children are uh, listen to their parents' instructions a little differently than their parents give them, right? This is happening with Adam and Eve and with God. But the big point here is that they make this decision that they're going to do what they want to do. And so they take of this thing they're not supposed to take of. Uh, the results are somewhat immediate, right? Uh, we have these two people that the, the Bible very explicitly said were naked and feel no, felt no shame, right? It's a weird detail, right? Why are we going into this? But the Bible tells us that because there's this idea that Adam and Eve had this relationship, that humanity at this point in its existence um, isn't afraid of each other. They don't have to live in shame. They're willing to be open. They're willing to be intimate. They're willing to share with one another. And then all of a sudden, this one act changes things. So there's distance between them now, right? There's a sense of, I've got my stuff, and I need to hide my stuff from you. Now, many of us are thankful that we're hiding stuff, right? This is a good thing. But nonetheless, this is a change that humanity goes from being open and connected to being distant. And it happens with God, too. The garden is a place of intimacy with God, and now there is a separation. They literally are trying to hide from God. In one of the most comical scenes possible. I mean, we don't sense there's any buildings, right? They're like behind a tree trying to get skinny, right? Hoping that God will walk by and not notice them there. Because they want to hide from God. And the thing that's important for us to notice, often we do this story and we talk about chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. And we talk about this curse that kind of comes out where God talks about all of the consequences of their decision. They're taken out of the garden, separated from the tree of life, right? There's a sense that death comes in at this point because they're no longer able to eat from that tree of life. And in the midst of all of that, it's easy to think that's the end, but it's really not. Genesis 1 through 11 is a literary unit. And what happens is this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of total and utter destruction and chaos. So um, if you go to the next story, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. And this is uh, real quickly what happens to them. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. 
In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering for portion, from fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Again, this is another story that we could impact, that we could take apart for a whole week. But remember, we're doing a big story, okay? So we're going to do snapshots real quick. This is a story of jealousy and hatred and murder entering into the world. It was not a far step from this fruit looks good and I want it. I don't care what God thinks about it to, you know, I'm really angry at you. I want you dead more than I want you alive. And so someone kills and murders and you see the world start to fall apart. You see morality start to fray at the edges. We then get to this weird story, Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married many of them, uh, any of them that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of human and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals and birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this is the setup of the story of Noah. Many of us know this, right? We know it from the children's stories. Big boats, animals coming in two by two. You know, the animals that came in by twosies, twosies. All that kinds of stuff, right? And um, this story begins, though, with this chaos. Okay, now this stuff is weird. All right, this is one of the more fantastic elements of this story. There's the sons of God. What are sons of God? We don't know. There may be angels. There's some kind of beings of spiritual power and significance that are different than humans. And there's this idea that they come down and they start um, having babies with human women, right? And the reason the story is troubling is because it, it's creating chaos. It's not keeping things organized. Remember how in the creation story we had, and you know, the cattle had, uh, were with cattle by their kind, and the birds that were in the air with their kind, and humanity with their kind. This is some sort of spiritual being and earthly being not respecting that they're different kinds. And we get this primordial history, this thing that ancient people would talk about of giants that roamed the earth and these heroes of old. And we could get real caught up in what are those and what does that mean? And people try to find, you know, Nephilim bones in the ground. And I, I don't want to go any of those places. The point of the story is that people just did what they wanted. And if there was a mixing of sort of angelic beings and human beings, sure, man, whatever goes, let's have fun. Let's do it. I want to do it. That sounds like a good idea. 
And it got to the point, the text says, that every inclination of their heart at any moment was evil. There was nobody who wasn't thinking about doing something evil at any second on earth. And that's how bad things get. Uh, one more real quick. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. You guys know this story probably. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. All right, that was it. <laughs> So the story goes on. We kind of know it. The, uh, this is the Tower of Babel. God takes these people who are all at one place, and um, he tries to separate them. You take me back one, Preston. Thanks. So if we can get the ziggurat. Yeah, I don't know what it's doing. <laughs> all righty. So, um, yeah, so we have, they're trying to build this tower. And, again, why are they building the tower? Well, a couple reasons. We want to be famous. Right? To quote John Lennon, we want to be more famous than God is basically the concept. But also, note they say we're going to do this so we can all stick together and not scatter out on the earth. When God created humanity, what was the thing he commanded them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. God told us we should fill the earth, but we want to stick in one place. So we're going to build this tower to tell them that we're going to do what we want to do. And over and over and over again in these stories, what we get is just pure chaos. It's just evil. It's just people killing each other. It is a mess. What happens slowly is that people start to undo all of that good work that God did. Uh, God created partnership between humanity and between humans and between humans and God. Humanity brings in division. God created intimacy, and humanity creates shame and conflict. God created life, and human beings start killing each other. God divided and organized the land, and humanity starts to muddle it and mess it up. Noah is uh, very explicit in this idea that what humanity does in chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis is undo everything that God did. Um, I hope this helps to show how explicit this is in the flood story, okay? Does anybody know what this is? Can you guess? This is what the world looks like to an ancient Jewish person, okay? Uh, unfortunately, this is how it looks to flat earthers as well, okay? But nonetheless, um, they actually follow a model that's very similar to what we have in Genesis. When you read the story of Genesis, it talks about God uh, creating... A dome for the sky, okay? So the idea is that the sky is a dome. You have earth here. And there was this concept that there are waters above and waters below. And if you read the creation story from an ancient perspective, the way ancient people thought about the world, what God does is he takes this mess of water and he takes some of the water and he squishes it down and forces it under the earth. Uh, under the earth. And then he builds a, a vault in the sky, a ceiling that holds some of the water up, right? And he creates between the waters above and the waters below um, a livable land. 
Now, this makes sense if you're an ancient person, because sometimes you dig down in the ground, and what do you find? Water, right? You get wells. They knew how to dig wells. So, okay, there must be water below us. And then sometimes you wake up in the morning, and there's rain coming from the sky. So clearly there's water above us that springs a leak every once in a while, right? And the idea was this is what God created. The flood is not just a random form of destruction. The flood is not just that God prefers water over fire for destruction. The flood is a story of uncreation. It is the story of a child kicking over somebody else's Lego tower. It is a story where the huma humanity's action leads to a situation where God's ceiling that was created to hold the waters up breaks, and like a dam, the waters flood down. And the, the, the ground is covered up, and the water rises, right? The sun and the moon that were in the sky are darkened out, and it's just clouds. You can't see the earth anymore. There's no such thing as an ocean. Everything is the ocean, right? It is just a conscious undoing. If you look at the language, the flood is God uncreating the earth because it's gotten so messed up. So, uh, what does all that mean? That's very uh, sad and frustrating and difficult. Um, what, we, what we really should read in this story, this is a post-apocalyptic set, right? We're used to seeing this in movies. It's interesting that when we think of the apocalypse, we always assume nuclear bombs and fire and deserts, right? It's always sandy. If you see people in a city and there's sand everywhere, it's the, it's the apocalypse, right? God's version doesn't look like that, but it's the same. you should get the same feeling when you get to the end of Genesis 11 of a world that has been obliterated. And it's obliterated because people did whatever they wanted. If the first act of the Bible is about how God created a beautiful, good world for us to thrive in, the second act is about how we looked at that creation and we kicked it in the shin and just destroyed it because we wanted it our way. Again, if you have children, you get this. They don't want your rules like, Dad, I'll do what I want to. But they don't understand that, you know, changing diapers and keeping fingers out of electrical sockets and not eating four-day-old milk, right? These are all things that are good for us, right? And this is just kind of the story of people wanting to do their own thing. Uh, we talked last week about each of these acts, and what the three questions we're asking is, who's the main character, what's the world like, and what's humanity's role, okay? And this is where we're at this week. Uh, the main characters in this part of the story are humanity. If you read, it is fascinating. In Genesis 1, God is the actor. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said this, God said that, and it happened. You then get to Genesis 3, and God is always, for eight chapters, walking into a mess, going, who made this? What's going on? Right? This happens in the garden. Where are you? Who told you you're naked? Why are you wearing the clothes? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? Right? This is the constant story. God is always reacting. And it's fascinating. Um, I shouldn't get distracted by this, but God says that he regrets that he created humanity. How does an eternal being that we talk about as being omniscient and omnipotent regret something, right? I regret something when I do something. I go, oh, that turned out a way I didn't expect. What does it mean for God to regret something? But there's this sense that he's just so overwhelmed with sorrow over what's happened. 
So we are the main actors of 3 through 11. Um, what is the world like? It is chaotic. It is violent. It is dark. There is murder. There is blood. It is just a mess. There are corpses all over the place because people do as they wish. And what role does humanity play? We are just dismantling everything that God has already done. So we look at the big story of Scripture. We started last week with God's intentions for what this world would be like. And the second act is for us to admit that the villain of this story is us. I want to note here, um, there's not a lot of Satan in this stuff. Okay, Satan doesn't show up to tempt Cain to kill his brother. Satan doesn't walk around saying, hey, go give your daughters to the sons of God. Right? Like, the word Satan, the word devil, never appears in any of these places. We do have the serpent who we've always identified as the devil. But most of the stuff is human beings doing what human beings want to do. And sometimes we portray the story of the Bible as the good God against the evil Satan, and we're in the middle. But that is not the way this story goes down. This is a story of a good God who creates a people, and they turn on him. Okay? This is not, you know, Gandalf versus Sauron. This is the man who creates a robot, and the robot turns on him. Okay? That is our role is that we are the bad guys of this story in our own selfishness and our desire to do what we want. And as we look at this and we look at what we're meant to do as a church, we need to be real about the problem that we face, which is sin. Uh, as we wrap this up, I just want us to think a minute about this. It is really easy in Western American culture, we have come to start to think about sin as someone trying to meddle in your life, Right? That when the church talks about people being sinners, they're messing with you about how much you drink or what, you know, what romantic relationships you're in or whatever, right? That sin is kind of this moralistic thing where we talk about those issues. But in the big picture, sin is a much broader and more difficult thing. Sin is this inherent selfishness that what I want is okay and I don't care if you like it. It is a selfishness that it's the root of racism and prejudice and bigotry. I'm cool. I'm great. You're not because I'm like me and you're different than me. It is the root of things that destroy our relationships. You and me don't get along because I do what I want and I don't care how it affects you. Right? It's this thing. Sin is this destruction of the fabric of our world that leads to murder and death and genocide and poverty and hunger and sickness and all of these other things. And it's a big deal. See, if, if, if sin is just a little morality thing, like, you know, oh, when you curse, you sin, so you should not curse because that's sinning. If that's all that sin is, then in the end, it, it, it's, you can trivialize it. You can make it not a big deal. But if sin is that selfish impulse where I do what I want no matter how it affects you, then we can see it as the root of everything that's wrong in our world. And the end is not just someone's hurt feelings. It is a world that literally burns with hatred and anger and murder. And that may, I'm sorry, it's really heavy, right, for like Sunday morning. Like, yay, now go out into the world. But as we tell the story, we have a major problem. We are that problem, and that problem is not going away anytime soon. If you watch the news, this story is not any different. There are canes that are killing their Abels all over the world. And so that is part of what the church is combating. And it's a real problem, and we have to recognize it and admit it. Because otherwise, the world continues just to burn in chaos.
so go and be well fed. No, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the story of Scripture at this point, right? This is the second act. Now, the next couple acts are going to be what God is going to do to try to remedy that chaos. Uh, what questions do we have? Uh, actually, you asked a question. So your question was, uh, Adam? Um, the question was, um, when Adam took of the fruit, does he know what he's doing or is Eve kind of pulling one over on him, right? Yeah, it says he's with her, but uh, yeah, Adam's totally guilty. And the reason I say it is uh, when you, I mean, that's certainly the, the position of Paul, right? Paul's really funny on this. Half the time when he talks about creation, it's Eve's fault. And half the time he talks about it's Adam's fault because Paul is willing to do what he wants with the story so that it helps his point. But um, the, it most comes out in Romans where Paul says, uh, Roman has, he has this, what's called the um, Adam typology. He says, sin came into the earth through one man, Adam, and then sin is solved by one man, Jesus. And so that's certainly Paul's position is that Adam is totally culpable. And it's interesting because there's kind of a sexism in this passage that cuts both ways. On the one hand, you can be like, oh, there's, you know, it's, it's sexist that, you know, they blame Eve for what happened. But in their culture, Adam's supposed to keep his wife in line, right, in their kind of understanding. And so it, he's not off the hook. An ancient person would not have watched this and go, well, it's his wife's fault. They would have said, what kind of house is he running if, you know, he's allowing this to happen uh, with his family? So it helps when we do put this in the context of parenting. Uh, this story can actually give a lot of peace to people when they have children that kind of do go off and live a way that, you know, doesn't honor their desires for their life. Because they'll say, well, if I was a good parent, this wouldn't have happened. The story of Eden is a perfect parent who creates a perfect home, and their child still acts like an imbecile, right? And so um, there's, you know, there's some peace to that, that even God can't parent well enough to get his child to not do things that they shouldn't do. Yeah, it's a really good question. So why, why is the tree there? Um, it certainly injects morality. Without it, there is no morality in the world. There's just automatrons going about doing what they're supposed to do. And uh, there is a philosophical debate that it is impossible to have lightness without dark, that there is impossibility to have morality without immorality, and that God so much wanted a world where we choose the right that he had to give us a wrong to give us the opportunity to choose the right. Does that make sense? And some of the pragmatists in us are like, no, 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 just leave that out and the whole thing will be better. But ultimately, there is this sense that, right, exactly, there's no choice at all. I mean, they're just, so that there is, there is the suggestion that God does know that this is going to happen. There's even a suggestion that he's developed a world outside the garden for them to go to. So, yeah, my, my Hebrew Bible professor thought he was like they did the wrong thing but they did the thing that he always expected and was prepared for them to do which is kind of interesting um but some people don't i mean there's there's theologians that say no it was it was always supposed to stay that way um an interesting debate in christian theology is are we supposed to be returning to eden or are we supposed to be transformed beyond eden when we see heaven and that's a very interesting question it's very easy if we use a parenting metaphor for that to be the case why would a parent have a room with an electrical outlet that a child might stick their finger in? Well, because one day that child's going to want to plug their iPod into it, okay? You know, like, there's, you know, so I think there's something interesting about that. 
And that certainly comes up in certain kinds of theology that talks about the world and God and everything kind of processing and moving and developing and growing. And anyways, that's another side point. <laughs> Any other questions about the yes? Yeah, let me just state real quickly. I mean, the kind of this question of, you know, are humans inclined towards good or evil? There's two ways to read this text. I won't tell you which way to do it. I have my preference. One of the ways to read this text is humans were pretty good. But then when Adam and Eve do this, they ruin the batch, right? They make it so all of their kids become evil. Um, and that's one way that's read that. That leads to sort of the doctrine of original sin, this idea that people are sort of born messed up. Um, the second way to read it is that it is not Adam's sin that makes us bad. It's our participation and copying of Adam that does. Right, that this story tells about how sin comes in the world, not because it enters through Adam, but because it gives us the template of what every single person always does. Right, it's a, it's a, it's essentially true that Adam is sort of a um, a type for the way we all act, and that we are culpable not because of what he did, but because we do what he does. Does that make sense? And so there's kind of two ways to read that text, depending on whether you believe in original sin or not. But again. Very long topic. Yes. All right. So why is Cain's gift not accepted? Just options on that. One is um, just God's free will. Uh, Israel I have chosen and uh, Esau, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Right? That he just liked one more than the other. The other option, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a joke, maybe that God just liked the meat better than he liked the veggies. I know if you bring me a salad and someone else brings me a steak, you're going to lose. Um uh, there's also maybe that the, there was not the right heart, the idea that maybe Cain didn't bring the best of his crops, whereas Abel brought the best of his food. The reality is the text doesn't really make clear to us. Yeah, I think Cain knows what the problem is. I'm inclined to think Cain did something. But the, the one argument that I think is interesting for sort of just the God's sovereignty thing is there are a bunch of pairs of brothers in the book of Genesis. And in every pair of brothers, there is always an irrationally favored brother. And there's an irrationally not favored brother, whether it's Jacob and Esau or whether it's Joseph and his brothers or it's Ishmael and um, Isaac. Right. And so there is this thought that maybe this is just God just picked one of them. Yes. So um, the first thing with genealogies, genealogies are difficult. For example, we have two of them and they don't match up. Um, the genealogies are very explicitly theological, I think. Um, for example, Matthew has a wonderful, perfect genealogy where there are 14 generations from, um, let me get this right. Uh, no, it goes, it's Jesus to the destruction of the temple. Yeah, well, I think it's a threefold. I want to say I want to say Matthew's. I might get this wrong. I believe Matthew's is from Abraham to David, and then David to the destruction of the temple, and then the destruction of the temple to Jesus. And each of those three are fourteen generations. Why are they fourteen? Because the name David is numerically fourteen, and he's saying David, 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 David. I don't think that's meant to give me an accurate like generation by generation listing. It's to say that he is the Jew of all Jews, he is the Davidide of all Davidides, and so and so, right? So I think there is some of that. 
Um, I think Luke, who does go all the way back to Adam, is uh, it's, he goes back to Adam instead of Abraham because instead of saying he's the Jew of all Jews, he's trying to say he's the man of all men, right? He's trying to make it a little broader. So I'm just saying there's theological impulses there. Um, I also think that that's culturally something they would have done in that day, but doing cultural practice is not necessarily an endorsement of historicity in my mind, but I can appreciate where that, con that conversation comes from. This comes up with Jonah. Right? When God says, you'll only get the sign of Jonah. They go, oh, Jonah's historical figure because Jesus thought he was. Well, okay, let's, wait a second. That's a, you know, that's a little bit of a jump. But I understand why people would feel that way. Does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's a, um, I don't think it's like that happened and it sort of like put this like spiritual virus in our kids that this happens. But I would say what happens with Cain and Abel is just the way kids are that they always want to see favoritism, no matter how much we love them, right? And so Cain and Abel shows us, and some of the big theological point is that before eating of that fruit, before the knowledge of good and evil, our kids would have just got along and not worried about that and felt loved and we would have had good families. But since we ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, since we chose kind of to go our own way, the, that, the, it's connected with that fig leaf thing, right? That now you got to defend yourself, you got to protect yourself, you got to make sure that mom loves me just as much as they love my sibling, and that animosity is just what human beings have done, and we continue to do forever. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does, we're not really sure, okay, it's kind of like the MacGuffin of the story that it kind of does something that we can't explain. It seems that they had enough moral reasoning that God holds them responsible for whether they eat it or not, right? Um, and, you know, you get that with kids. Your kids don't understand why they should have to pay taxes, but they understand not to eat a cookie unless they're asked, they ask, right? So it's just a developmental thing, I think. Any other questions? This is what I love about the Q&A. Some weeks, it's literally 30 seconds, and then other weeks, it's not. <laughs> so... All right. Um, yeah, it's my hope in all of this that we just acknowledge that our selfishness can destroy things and that that is something that we fight against. And our job as the church is to kind of try to help undo this damage that human selfishness causes. And we'll see that as the story continues. We'll have one more story and one more song and then we'll be done.